I want to read from two passages of Scripture this morning. One from Genesis chapter 6. If you'll turn there. Genesis chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 5 and read through chapter 7, verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Of course, this is the antediluvian age, or before the flood, and uh, the call and command to Noah to build an ark, and the reason why. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, that not just then, that's now as well, more avenues than ever for the evil thoughts of men to manifest themselves so very easily. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. That is a huge vessel. If you ever visit the ark encounter, You'll, you'll get a pretty good idea of how huge that ark was. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee, and they shall be male and female of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto the ark, unto thee, uh, to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, 
and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep them alive, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. Now I want to read from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to center our attention upon... Noah and what took place in the days of Noah and the faith that Noah had and exercised uh, on the basis of what God had commanded him to do, which was really an amazing faith, as we shall see, I believe, as we consider it. But in Hebrews chapter 11, um, let, let's just begin reading at verse 1, then we'll make some comments about those men who lived and are mentioned here before the universal flood in the days of Noah. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now it's important when you look into, for instance, Hebrews chapter 11, and you read about these three men mentioned here who lived before the deluge, before the great universal flood that came in the days of Noah, Abel, Enoch, and of course uh, Noah himself, uh, that this follows, of course, a historical order. But there's more here than a, than a historical order. <clears throat> there is a progression of the way of saving faith, actually, that we can derive from these men. 
When we speak about saving faith, we mean the channel or the means by which God saves his people, separates them from the way of the fallen world, and brings them to finally be with himself, bringing them to himself. When you read of Abel, you find a faith that's based upon divine revelation and direction. God gives the direction. Abel offers a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, a sacrifice we know that would point forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. And uh, his brother Cain does not, even though God gives the call for him to do so and shows wherein his error was. And yet, through sacrifice, God had respect, we read, unto Abel and to his sacrifice. Then you find in Enoch uh, what we might consider as the continuation of faith, the continuance of faith, separating him from the profaneness of his generation and setting him apart to walk a consistent walk with the living God. And of course, in a wondrous, miraculous way, God translated him even into heaven to be with himself. Then in Noah, in Noah we find the work of faith and we find the witness of faith in the midst of an otherwise totally ungodly, corrupted generation. He alone, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by saying saving faith, it's not meant that faith in and of itself is a savior. It's not. It is that channel by which God unites us to the only one who can and does save. You see, faith has an object. Faith must have an object or it means nothing. It's nothing without an object. Saving faith, of course, has for its object the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of the Father, uniting to Him and to the Father through Him. Our chapter is all about the nature and the manifestation of that faith that operates in one all the way to the saving of the soul. And in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews emphasizes a persevering faith. And, of course, faith begun, salvation begun, is in justification. That's wondrous. That's forever. Then, when this faith is real, it continues. Indeed, there's a perseverance of faith. And that faith continues all the way to final salvation. And that's kind of what we read of in here in Hebrews chapter 10, the last chapter, verses 38 and 39. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. That's a solemn thing. There's evidently a kind of faith that's not real and not saving. But of them that believe, this faith that's real continues all the way to the saving of the soul. So... <clears throat> We have uh, quite a passage that we're going to be considering and uh, looking into here. Quite a passage indeed. When we come to Noah, 
When we come to know, we come to one who came to the time of the judgment of the world and was saved out of it. The judgment of the world would take place in his days. And when we think of Noah, of course, we remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And that's a solemn comparison our Lord makes to those days and to the days just prior to his second appearing. All of these men who lived in the age from creation to the judgment of the world by a flood, they stand out for us as trophies of God's wondrous grace. In a wicked world, a world that the wickedness increased in in manifestation until the solemn estimate of God determined to destroy it because God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth that every imagination of the thought of his heart was on the evil continually. Can you imagine that? I can because I live in a sinful flesh. And apart from regeneration, Man goes after that which delights things that are vile and sinful. That's what's happening with the media, with the music, with the movies, all of these things. And the more one gets involved in that, they do so because there is this delight in them, in things that are not of God and do not promote anything that's good or godly, but wicked and vile. We have to be so very careful in the hour in which we live. The wickedness of man and the violence of man in the earth was so great that God determined to destroy the whole world by a flood of waters. But then we read about Noah in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 that by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Well, you see, we have a faith in Noah that's demonstrated to be real, genuine. Some of the characteristics of that faith, Noah's faith produced a fear of God. It produced a fear of God. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. The fear of God is the product of genuine faith. The fear of God is incredibly important. And divinely given faith lays hold of God is as absolutely true. That his word is truth. That his word is infallible that his word does not change, that what he says, he does. Whether that be in the form of a warning or in the form of a promise, God does exactly what he says he will do. No one has ever proven God to be a liar. God is true. He is the true and living God. So that genuine faith heeds God's warnings as much as embracing his promises. 
It heeds the word of God. And we have the firm witness of Scripture to show that no one ever trifled with the living God, ever ignored his warnings, ever defied his word and escaped. That happened, of course, as we're taught in Scripture at various epochs of history. And so, turn over again to Second Peter. Second Peter and the second chapter. We read about that here in Second Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 10. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation or the way the, the living of these wicked ones took place, the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, that is, authority, control. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of digni dignities or dignitaries. This knowledge, it is this knowledge of God as true that he never says and does not but he does exactly what he says. That his word is true, can be depended upon. You stake your life on it. And the witness to this in history and the laying hold of this in the heart that causes us to walk in the genuine fear of God. Revelation 15, 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, and uh, God manifests his judgment in the world. We're taught that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If one does not have fear, they're fool. And without the fear of God, there's foolishness. There's thoughtlessness. And there's a heading to judgment that's not going to be escaped. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. In the case of Noah, as in the case with true faith, he believed God when there had never been such a thing as a flood. There'd never been any kind of thing like that on the earth. There'd never been any kind of corporate judgment. As a matter of fact, it never rained. It did not rain until then. We learn from Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, that God 
used a mist of the earth in order to water it. Rain came then. That's why the bow was in the cloud after the rain came. To this day, rains only came then. Before then, watering it with a mist. Thus our verse emphasizes that Noah believed God. He was moved by fear, not because anything had ever happened before, not because there was anything externally that it was going to happen, but on the basis of the bare word of God. Only what God said he believed. He feared God in the sense he knew God it would do exactly what he said he would do. God is true. And he knew it. And he was moved with fear on the bare word and warning of God. He was warned of God of things not seen as yet. No little thing. Thus, by faith, he was moved by fear. We too are warned in Scripture distinctly to flee the wrath to come. It is coming. It is certain to come. It will come without any doubt whatsoever. The wrath to come, the judgment of God is coming. Because God will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to flee the wrath to come. There's only one place of safety. There is no other place of safety. There's only one hiding place from the wrath of God that is certain to come by which we may escape that coming wrath. In uh, this same epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 6, we're taught of that. And in verses 17 through 20. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it, by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. To those who flee to this refuge, to those who flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who trust him, God gives them the assurance of two things. He promises them life in Christ, and on top of that, he made an oath. Both of those things, completely immutable. His word, his oath. Those things cannot be changed. They are firm. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which is within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those of whom he is the forerunner, they are sure to follow. There's an absolute hope based upon truth that will not fail. Which is wondrous indeed. We only flee 
this place of destruction and the world is a place of destruction and a place that is going to be destroyed. When God begins to work in one's heart, they begin to realize they're in a place of destruction. This place is going to be judged. It's going to be destroyed. There's only, of course, the one place of fleeing from the destruction, fleeing from sin, and fleeing with all confidence. That's only into the loving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as it was only by entering into the ark, that alone. You know how many doors the ark had, right? How many? One on, one door. One door in the side of that ark. No other way in, no other way out of that ark. One door. And that door was a prefigurement of God's salvation those who enter in through the door are saved and they shall be delivered from the wrath to come. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. One door. Noah and his family were saved because they entered into that door, into the ark. It's only as we enter into the salvation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and leave all to him. Salvation's of him. It's in his sovereign hands that we too shall come forth safe on the other side of the judgment to come, delivered from the wrath to come as well as delivered from sin and delivered from this present evil world. There's something peculiar about this huge vessel. I mean, this was the biggest ship you can imagine. It was incredible, the size of this ship. It was incredible, the levels of this ship and what it would hold. But there's something it didn't have. It didn't have a rudder. There was no rudder on that ship. And it didn't have something else. It didn't have a sail. No sails, no rudder. That's rather important to understand. You see, it's God alone who must be trusted. Entering into that ark, God only trusted to keep those safe through the flood. He must guide it. He must take care of it. It must be of him. We too, we too are not only to be moved by fear in order to flee the wrath to come, but we're to be moved by a full confidence in the promise of God in the coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Yes, indeed, that's divine election. But he also says, him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The only way one keeps back from coming to him is if they love sin, the world, and themselves more. And that's their responsibility. So there's the promise that in coming to Christ, 
He will not cast one out. Trusting him only in him to save. He is the Savior. Man is not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. It's not man that does the saving. The saving. Christ does the saving. Saving. Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's in his sovereign hands. Salvation not in the hands of man. It's in the hands of God. And that's a wondrous thing for those who enter into the door and come through the door to God. Noah not only feared God, he believed the warning. He believed the warning. By also trusting God to keep his promises well. And Noah acted by faith. By faith to obey what God commanded. He believed him. Even though nothing like that had ever been. He believed God. So you see, Noah's faith produced a, an actual, real, vital fear of God. A proper kind of fear of God. Knowing that God means what he says, says what he means, and does exactly what he says. Noah's faith was an overcoming faith. Noah was born in sin just like you and me. There's only been one in this world who came into this world sinless. Well, actually, one came, was, was created without sin, but only one born in this world without sin. I like Emma. She picked that up one time. She said, well, there are two people sinless and talking about Adam before the fall. and That's okay. I, I, like, the, I like that kind of thinking. It takes place. But there's only one born without sin. As the angel said to Mary, uh, the virgin mother of our Lord, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Noah was born in sin. Abel was born in sin. Enoch was born in sin. Abraham was born in sin. All of these people, they were born in sin just like us. They had to be regenerated, that is, begotten of God, given newness of life through God's grace. That's why we read in Genesis 6, 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't find merit in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Which means he had the same conflicts with flesh and unbelief as we. His faith had to overcome what his eyes could not see, nor had ever seen before. He must walk by faith, not by sight. And it's only a faith which comes through God's grace that overcomes the world within, as well as the world without, and continues in producing the fruit of and the works of faith. By grace are you saved. Through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. But the comfort is that it is God's grace that brought and then must keep us in faith, in the faith of the Son of God. It's God's grace that brings the faith. It's God's grace that keeps us in it. It's God's power that enables us to walk by faith and embrace the hope set before us in the coming of our Lord. We're shut up then, just like Noah in the ark, no sail, no rudder, dependent completely upon God to bring him through the flood and his family through the flood. We're completely dependent upon our Lord into whom we enter by faith. And to be kept by him. That's why Paul could look at the afflicted Philippians and say in Philippians 1 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's why he could look at them and say, It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You will, you do. Not because of, of you, because God worketh in you to do so. It's all in his hands. I'm glad. Apart from the grace of God, I could not keep myself. Apart from the grace of God, you could not keep yourself. Apart from the grace of God, we could not persevere in faith. And then, concerning this man Noah, no doubt, scorns, jeers, oppositions, feeling the despite of an ungodly and unbelieving world had to have been his continual portion. But then, a genuine fear of God born out of a real faith overcomes the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare, said Solomon. Unless we are bold enough to speak the truth, better not have anything to do with it. Unless we stand firm on what we know to be right, the fear of man brings a snare and will prevent one from walking in the way they should. Fear not them which kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. And isn't it amazing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the meek and lowly Savior, taught more about hell than he did heaven? Noah. <clears throat> Noah was a testimony in an ungodly generation. The generation was heading for inescapable judgment. It was imminent. It was coming. And by his obedience to God, he preached to that generation. 
He's called, as we read in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, a preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed God was coming. No doubt he called men to repentance. He warned them of what was coming. Warned them over and over that this judgment was coming. That God had declared it and it was going to take place. By his faith and his testimony, the very same faith by which he was saved and his house, he also condemned that unbelieving world. The same gospel, by the way, ministers death as well as life. You do know that? As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, we are unto God, unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. How many have sat under the gospel of the Son of God become hardened? Become hardened to it. How many are warned over and over and over again and it flies off their back like water on a duck's back? It has no impact. But it does upon some. And the gospel, and to be under the light of the gospel, gives greater responsibility than those who've never heard. When we truly live unto God, when we're separated unto him and separated from the profane world in which we live, that world comes into conflict with us and is condemned by the very faith that we demonstrate and confess before it. If you live godly in Christ Jesus and you bear testimony to the Son of God and to your trust in him, and to your reliance upon God and your belief in his word that he is the only legitimate lawgiver in this universe and the moral governor of it, you'll be scoffed at. And yet you'll be a light. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, wrote Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 11. If you live unto God, truly in Christ, you're going to be a reproof to an ungodly, vile, and sinful world. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ says light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love the evil deeds. They want the evil deeds. They want the vileness. They want the world. They want these charms. They want these delights. And anybody that finds their joy in God and his wondrous truth and his grace and his Christ, the world looks at them as peculiar. And you know what they are? They are. They're a different kind of people. Noah's faith was persevering. He had a persevering faith. We have to remember that from the time God warned Noah of the coming judgment, instructed him to the building of the ark. There would pass a period of 120 years. Those fellows lived a long, long time before the flood. From the time Noah was warned and instructed to build the ark until the flood came, it would be a period of 120 years.
There would be a period of delay. A period of delay. There must have been those who said, this man's a crazy old man that's building this big boat and it never had any, we've never had any place to put it. It's just going to be there forever till it rots. I'm sure there was mockery like that. Jeering by an unbelieving world to which he would preach for 120 years. How many converts would he have? Not a single convert. Can you imagine? 120 years. Not one convert. And all else combined would not move him from the faith by which he lived. And again, this persevering faith is what we're called to, of course, in the book of Hebrews. We're to run the race with patience. I'm not interested so much as how you begin. How many multitudes are given the assurance because they say some prayer, they do something, they walk some aisle, that they're saved. And then it comes to be found out that their heart was really in the world, to which they turn back eventually. They go after what they want. We seek what we want. We go after what we really desire. Do we not? And that happens. We're not simply to start well. We're to run the race with patience. As we're taught in the book of Hebrews. We're to be looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to him crucified, looking for him to come, looking unto him and for him. Living unto him as those who've been bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. Learning to day by day take our cross up to follow him. I have more confidence in somebody that does that than somebody who can make a big profession of faith. During that 120 years, the world would pay him no heed. They wouldn't listen to that crazy old man, Noah. They'd go on as if everything would just continue just as it had always been. No matter what that man says making no preparations for the judgment to come. This is what the Lord Jesus told us would be the case when he comes to judge the world as it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be also in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Noah didn't have any converts. No converts. The world just went on like it was, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Everything spent on this world, everything on this life, everything on its joys, and everything on what could be gotten out of the world, ignoring that preacher of righteousness that warned men, judgment is coming, God is going to destroy this wicked, vile, violent earth. And all that's in it with a flood of waters. 
Nobody would listen. The attitude of the world is just the same as it was in the days of Noah. In essence saying, we've heard all this before. Nothing's going to be different. Nothing's going to change. Where's the promise of his coming? You remember we read that in 2 Peter chapter 3? Scoffers! Where's the promise of his coming? That's why Peter says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. There'll be a different kind of destruction. This one's by fire. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are there and shall burn, be burned up. We, though, nevertheless, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We're taught Ye therefore, beloved, knowing, seeing, and know these things before, beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked come into that judgment. Fall from your steadfastness, but grow. Grow in grace. In the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. After the now is forever. We live in the last days. It's a solemn thing. Nothing to indicate to the world that the Lord's coming. But he will. Judgment is coming. It will be here. It will take place exactly as we're taught in Scripture. Well, we might ask the question, was Noah's faith in Christ? Can any be saved apart from the Lord Jesus before or after his coming? Can any be saved apart from him? Neither is there salvation in any other. Ever. Noah's faith was in Christ. Now, listen carefully. The only righteousness that comes by faith is the righteousness of Christ. That imputed righteousness that comes through faith imputed to the believing sinner you remember Paul's words in Philippians 3 what things were gained to me those I counted lost for Christ yea doubtless and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord of whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dumb that I may uh, win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith Noah had a righteousness that was imputed oh yes he had one imparted as well but he had that righteousness the imputation of righteousness the righteousness of Christ imputed even to him Though Noah demonstrated the reality of his faith by works, 
It was through the means of his faith in God's promise alone that he was justified. You see, all these three men, you remember we began speaking about that lived before the flood, Abel, Enoch, Noah. All of these men had the knowledge of a promise that God made when man fell in the garden. They had this knowledge. And God, speaking the first prophecy, to whom did he speak that prophecy? To the serpent. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. They knew that promise. Those men knew that promise. As a matter of fact, then we read in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, including them, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen, received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Would you flee the wrath to come? It's coming. Would you flee it? We close your ears and close your heart, or will you hear? The wrath of God is coming. You're not going to escape it. It is coming. Would you flee it? Would you have the fear to flee the wrath that is coming? To escape the awful consequences of the judgment to come. It's coming. then you must flee to the only ark of safety there is now. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be in him. And he is the door. He is the door. You must flee to him and flee to him only. You must come to him as a vile sinner as vile as anyone else in this fallen world. And yet if you know it and you want to be free from it, you want to be delivered from the wrath to come, it must be by coming to Him, trusting Him, believing Him, giving up any thought of your merit whatsoever. Trusting only in his merit. When that takes place, you'll find out that was God's grace. <laughs> That's God's wondrous grace. Then you're to confess him openly. Beginning in believer's baptism. Showing your faith that you know yourself to be dead and alive with Christ by that heaven-drawn picture of baptism. And then to continue that confession to the end of your life in this world. The kind of faith that pleases God is the faith that has Christ alone for its object. The Son of God 
came into this world from eternity, took flesh and blood to redeem sinners, to save sinners, to make them his own and his own forever. There must be a total acceptance of his death alone for the remission of your sins. A dependence completely upon the word of God as its ground and basis. If that faith is true, it will move by the internal effect produced to a life of faith and obedience. The preacher won't have to plead with people to come and be faithful to the ministry of the word. They'll want to be. The preacher won't have to plead with people to be a light and witness in this world. They will be. And those who abide, who abide in Christ will bear fruit. The key to fruit bearing is abiding in him only. Trusting him only. So may God be pleased to grant that wondrous grace of faith. The faith that produces a proper fear of God. That faith that continues, that perseveres. That faith that is in Christ and in him only. Trusting only in him and his merit.